We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. And good evening, friends and family. It is another episode of The Eight Black Hands. If you come for our eight million black children, you can catch these hands. If you will notice tonight, there's only six of the hands, but that's still enough for you to catch. It's enough for you to uh, to, to to need your health insurance. Um, we are one down, brothers. We one down tonight, but there are three of us here. We have two great guests we're going to have a great conversation tonight, but I would love to start out just by checking in, seeing how everybody is. How's your head? How's your head this week? How you doing? <laughs> well, anybody. I'm cool. I, I start, you know, you got to you got you got to point to no, it. You don't. It's all good. I, no, I start, don't. man. Well, I'm uh, I'm happy to be here with you brothers today, man. Uh, I'm excited for this show. I'm excited for our guests um, and, and just to learn some more, man. I, I you know, I, I've been seeing about the book in a lot of places. I haven't had a chance to read it. So I'm excited to learn more and just on that process. So, you know, let's let's see what it do. Uh, young, young, young Sharif. You're you. Yeah. Doing, man, it's cold for the first time. I'm usually the, I'm not the guy who gets cold. And I went to school in the mountains of Pennsylvania and I was fine with a hoodie and shorts, you know, pretty much most of the winter. It's a little cold this uh, past couple of days. But uh you know, still got that night hiking in the midst of the snow and the ice and just trying to stay out of Omicron and everybody else's way, man. Like, you know, this, this hospital's 80 percent full, uh, but I'm super excited about uh, about our guest this evening, man. Uh, looking forward to uh, this conversation. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. What's big on your mind this week? What's big on your mind? Hmm. <laughs> You asking, you see, you 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 asking difficult questions. Nah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, <laughs> let's to see. I mean, out. get that mind loose. I, I would say big on big on my mind. I would just say uh, I'm always thinking about my organization and what's next for us. I'm always trying to think about. I'm in the middle of writing reports, right? Like for funders and stuff, and it's always weird because you have to talk about the work you've done. And kind of not brag on your work, but like I never feel like we do enough. Like it's always more that I want to do. So there's a weird balancing act that's happening. But we also did accomplish a lot this year. But uh, there's a lot of black kids that need us. It's a lot of black families that need us and need what we have. So I'm grateful and, and we're blessed to have this platform on a black hands where we get to reach people directly. So that's what that's the big thing on my mind. Yeah, man. I mean, so much, man, from the, you know, the it seems like in the wintertime, you know, you have like uh, more fire. I don't even know if that's true, but it just seems like it. You know, we had a really bad, uh, devastating uh, losses in both Philly and New York and probably many other places that just might not have, you know, caught the news cycle. Um, you know, so that that's been on my mind, just, you know, particularly because the number of children um, that perished in those uh, in those fires. Um, and then, you know. As y'all know, it was like almost 600 murders uh, last year in Philly. And it's, you know, jumped off the the back right, you know, right at the start of 2022. And so just, you know, and everything, you know, no matter how many people are shot, it's probably three times as many who've been assaulted or shot or, you know, and didn't die. And so, you know, just the, the mayhem um, and particularly that our children 
you know, face, even if they just see it on the news, like how traumatic is that to constantly either become super traumatized or numb, which is another form of trauma, you know, so just what our students are going through um, Mm -hmm. during all that time. Um, And then on a, a, you know, a different note, lighter note, you know, um, sometimes cold days like this, I'm just wondering if if my honeybees are thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about them, (laughs) you know, so. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Probably praying for some of that steam right now. Uh, But man, that's Um, wild, man. Well, Chris, what we got going on, brother? How you doing, man? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's... Well, two I like things. I like the set. I like the little color behind you. I like it. You you, you like it, bro? I like Is it. it okay? It's nice. You like it? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I wasn't too sure. Keep shouting them out. You're trying to get noticed on this uh this John. I forget. I know you're talking about the thing that judges people's backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm trying to get noticed. So, <laughs> um, well, let me start where, where Sharif ended, and then I'll I'll end uh with the show because the two things work together. The first one is you know what Sharif said. You know, it got cold all of a sudden in Minnesota. You know, about this time every year, it's after the holidays. It's cold for no reason anymore. It's still white outside. There's still snow and it starts snowing again and whatnot. And you start getting a little beleaguered uh, about this time because before Christmas, it all has this magical feel like that's why you have snow. Oh, my God, sun is coming, that whole thing, whatever. And then after that, after Christmas, it starts to feel like, okay, can we just get to spring now? Because I'm tired of, you know, shoveling all that stuff. But um, I bought a game over uh, Christmas break and it's called Heige. Heige. Okay. In Finland, there's something called Heige or whatever. In Finland, there's this thing about making the most of the coldest of times. They don't, they don't lament the cold weather. They don't like, oh my God, it's so cold. Or, oh my God, I can't go outside or whatnot. No, they go ice fishing and ice uh, swimming. And they learn how to like be comfortable in their houses and, and put out candles and whatever. Just they, they make the most of a thing that other people couldn't live through which is the, the, their official word for it is H-Y-G-G-E, Heige. So uh, I started thinking about that over Christmas and started applying it in other places. So, you know, uh, uh, the Stoics believe it. Uh, and now okay. I believe it. You make the you make the best out of worst things. You just lean into it. Like, you know, like if you take cold showers, all of a sudden cold showers don't hurt no more. Right. Like it's that sort of thing. So I'm trying to think about that a little bit. Now, in regards to our show tonight, uh, I don't know. Something goes wrong with my algorithm sometimes. So Sharif and I did a show a couple weeks ago where we were trying to uh, split the difference between this fight that we're having within our community between uh, uh, black males and uh, LGBTQ uh, community members and and others. White. We're in a weird moment with all that stuff. And uh, I'm a person who wants to see the humanity of all of our people. But immediately after that, my my personal algorithm went crazy. So on TikTok this week, I had a whole bunch of anti-black male TikTok in my, just came out of nowhere. And, and, and black folks talking about black men, you are the problem. And you have always been the problem and you're trash and blah, blah. blah. And man, like I fell down a rabbit hole with, it. I couldn't believe how much of it there was. Right. And uh, I don't know <laughs> who decided that I needed to see just how deep that gets. That, but it gets deep. And I, you know, I have a couple of yeah. conversations with folks about it this week. Like, had a couple of conversations. Like, I get that you might be hurting, but you can't just tell us that all of us are trash either, though. 
right? Like, see, this is, you know, like toxicity goes two ways. It could go two directions. Anyways, with regards to tonight's show, the ability to land somewhere positive with these two brothers that we have uh, that are going to join us today. So there is a book out right now, and we'll put it up for people to see. I, too, am America. And if you know that phrase that comes from a Langston Hughes quote, this is written by Sean uh, Dove and Nick Childs. Uh, Sean Dove, if you don't know, has been involved in the black male achievement work going back more than a decade uh, um, uh, probably 13 years or so ago or more, uh, has been working on creating positive pathways for black males to achieve and to find their rightful place in a society that has not loved black males. And he has done it through a faith field, uh, way a positive, uh, a campaign. And, uh, and he's been masterful and smart about bringing together philanthropy and organizations and the public and and using just about setting a table that almost anybody can can sit with this book that he has is a, is a lot about his journey and we're going to talk more about this we're going to bring him on and uh, nick childs is a journalist who actually wrote this book with him um and he can tell you himself when nick comes in the other books that he has uh he has lent his pen to his mighty mighty pen to um but these are two brothers that are serious about us being able to put our best foot forward and, and restore our humanity. When I say my algorithm was all wrong this week with the wrong vision of black males, these are two brothers who, who, who can set us right and set my algorithm right. So it is good to see you brothers, Sean Dove, Nick Childs, good to see you uh, uh, today. Now, Nick, this is my first time meeting you. So if I'm saying your name wrong, your last name, uh, it could be Chili's. Chilles, not Childs. Is it Childs? Am I getting it right? I always have to check yeah. in with people because I'm terrible with that sort of thing. But welcome, brothers. Thank you for coming on the show tonight. He, he's going to write a couple more books and it will become uh, Chile. But right now, <laughs> 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 Chile. Uh, it's going to be like Chile, shopping at Target. Right. Yeah, we're going to feel you. Listen, happy to be here. Uh, eight black hands. Um, we got 10. Uh, Black Hands today and uh, excited for this conversation and just uh, grateful to be here with my co-collaborator and co-author and most of all a friend for almost uh, 35 uh, years, right? So uh, happy to be here. And thank you gentlemen for having me on. Um, you know, I, I haven't met you before, but I feel already like, you know, like Y'all have been in my sphere for a long time. You know, I'm hearing your conversation and the, the, the casual, friendly, chiding nature of your friendships. And I, and I like it. I like it. Uh, we don't hey, like well, thank you, Nick. We appreciate it. <laughs> no, thank you. The chiding uh, is, you know, you hit it right on the head. <laughs> let's see what Nick is saying at the end of the hour, right? Yeah, ah. exactly. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting about that? We started the Eight Black Hands podcast as four black men that uh, have worked in education in one way or another for a while, but felt alienated alone. But our conversations with each other created a small group of fellowship for us, you know, small well to draw on each week with each other. So we had weekly conversations, but uh, what you have written about and what you have vision of uh, uh, is a much bigger version of why we should have fellowship around uh, black males doing well. Tell me more about um, the, the impetus for the book, 
and the big message in it that you think you hope that people take away from it? Sure. So Nick and I have had an opportunity to do a couple of interviews together. And uh, uh, typically uh, someone will say, all right, Nick, this is for you. Uh, Sean, this is for you. But I will um, uh, dive in. And uh, Chris, you had said something in the introduction about uh, me being engaged in the Black Male Achievement uh, movement and field for the last decade, 13 years. And I just want to just jump in and rebuke that and say, look, um, I began this work on September 25th, 1962, uh, the moment that I was born, uh, a a black baby boy in the United States. And uh, I to America on loving and leading black men and boys, you know, we we gotta make sure we keep the, the subtitle front and center is uh, really um, a story about the paradox of uh, promise and peril for uh, uh, black men and boys. Uh, we borrowed a title from the uh, iconic uh, Langston Hughes and his 1926 poem, I Too Am America. And uh, that poem concludes, uh, and that poem is really about the paradox of uh, promise and peril for black people and and, and black men. But he concludes uh, the poem with this prophetic, um, poetic prophecy that someday uh, you'll see how beautiful I am and become ashamed and you'll be ashamed, talking about uh, America. And I Too America is really about our book that... um, Quite frankly, we don't, or I don't believe that America is capable of feeling the shame of its oppression, its racism, mm. its white supremacist mm. uh, 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 policies, and that we can't wait as black men for uh, anyone to tell us that we are beautiful, that we can look in the mirror and tell ourselves that, right? And so it is my story. It's a story of uh, healing, uh, but we also uh, follow uh, two young men, uh, Jamari in Detroit uh, and Romero in Oakland, and just the uh, circuitous lives uh, that they are uh, having to live, being two uh, young men with uh, enormous talent, uh, but the barriers, uh, both systemic, their environment, and what it takes to rise. And uh, so it's, um, you know, equal parts memoir, um, historical account of the campaign for black male achievement. Uh, my story is so similar to uh, Romero's and uh, Jamare's. And it's also a manifesto uh, in the spirit of uh, community building. Uh, we have a collection of, uh, in the third part of the book, many manifestos uh, from leaders that uh, share their vision and their voices on the path forward. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I see it is, is we've been overwhelmed and bombarded and, and attacked by narratives for much of our time here on, on, on this particular um, land that we, I think, have internalized so much of it. We believe our people, our, our women, our children, so, so many of us, certainly the mainstream community, walk around this idea that that we are a population to be feared and within that within that paradigm i think comes um a willingness to kind of keep us at arm's length to to not engage with us as much as possible and so that kind of buries 
you know, our true humanity, who we are. And so our net, our narrative becomes one of negativity, one of, um, oppression, desperation. And so this book is an attempt to start changing that, that paradigm to, to start rewriting the narrative surrounding black men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we choose to do that by looking at, at three lives, um, Two young men, as Sean mentioned, one in Detroit, one in Oakland, who who are, are kind of infused with this 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 promise, with this talent, with these gifts. I mean, both of them are, are natural leaders. Both of them are, are very intelligent, very articulate, but yet the, their path forward is not clear. I mean, and these are young men who, in other communities, would be stars, would be rising stars, and many people would be be eager to to use and 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 to to absorb their services and and to have them kind of soar and into their their adult lives but yet um we we saw when we kind of delved deeper that you know there's a lot of questions that they have about you know what does it mean to be a black man to be an adult you know what are the opportunities that are available to me you know both of them had difficult times in school you know, which is very emblematic of, of so many of the black males in our country. Um, and so, you know, school was something that they were, I think, very purposely trying to avoid and as they got out of high school. But, you know, they knew that 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 was possibly sketching a very difficult path for them. Um, so, you know, we use their stories and we use Sean's story of, of his incredible resilience, you know, overcoming drug addiction overcoming a lot of the demons that he was dealing with throughout his, his young life, um, using mentors as he has so effectively, um, to, to kind of create his, his, his own vision of, you know, what his life should look like and, you know, to kind of embody so much of, of, you know, what we see in our, our men as natural leaders, you know, which he's done so brilliantly over the last couple of decades. So, you know, in my mind, this is about writing, rewriting some of these narratives. Mm. That's powerful. Charles, that has to, I think, resonate with you in, in a couple of different ways. Yeah. Because you've written, first of all, you know, having lived in Oakland, growing up in Oakland, and then two, having also written about the black tax mm-hmm. of people who make it out of the, the, um, the contest, I don't know what you call it, the race, the contest, the, the, the place where they put us to diminish our brilliance. You've right. written about this. We use a similar structure too. I did a, uh, I did oral histories through the, through the eyes of three black males that grew up throughout the crack epidemic and where they ended up. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, I, I, so one, the book sounds amazing. I, I guess one of my questions, you know, and just listening to you all, especially as somebody who grew up in Oakland, uh, and just having to go to some, some really deep and dark places to do that book appropriately, even though those were not my stories, but they were stories that were really connected to mine. What is something that uh, surprised you or shocked you all as you were putting the book together that the average person reading it may not know? Like, what is that like thing that you were just like, oh man, this is, you know, like get, get oh, can you unveil the curtain a little bit for us? Uh, one, so it can excite people about going to buy the book and there will be a book club. I'm hearing about that. Uh, but two, just so you all can have that cathartic moment, because uh, I know there was a, a heavy moment of catharsis for me when I was doing it. So, 
So I'll, I'll quickly, uh, Charles will jump in. And I don't know if this is a surprise, but uh, it is um, an unveiling, a declaration. And I think at the heart of uh, the book is a declaration that, you know, black men and boys uh, want everything that everybody else wants uh, as a human. We want love. We want safety and we want belonging, right? And who doesn't want that, right? Mm -hmm. And inherently wanting that as black men in the United States, uh, it's almost uh, uh, an anomaly, right? And we want to be seen, right? And particularly, not only do we want to be seen, uh, we want what's reflected, what, you know, folks seeing us to be reflected back to us. And so if you are, uh, constantly having reflected back to you demonization, criminalization, uh, a fear that uh, Nick talked about. And what we write about in the book is, for example, Romero Wesson in Oakland and uh, was in the Oakland Unified School District. And it wasn't until he got into a classroom that was designed by Chris Chapman in the Office of uh, African-American Male Achievement, this manhood class, one of his first black male teachers. And not only was he seen, what was reflected back to him was that you're loved, that you're cared for, that I believe in you. And so in so many ways, the book is about hope. But it's also about uh, vulnerability. Um, you know, during the uh, writing of the book, many folks are like, wow, I appreciate your vulnerability. Your vulnerability. Had to keep going back and like, damn, what did I write? What did I, you know, what did I say? You know, I'm going to rip out pages of the book. And uh, vulnerability is our strength. And I am grateful that I grew up uh, in an era uh, of black men where I can go to Nick and I can say, I love you, right? And I can cry with Nick. I can be vulnerable. We can hold each other uh, uh, accountable. And that is the humanization of black men and not waiting for folks to tell our story, but tell, you know, tell our own stories. Mm, that's what's up. Yeah, it feels like we are. Uh, Sharif, I'd love to hear from you because uh, starting in school, I think is where we start criminalizing uh, um, black boys in a way that's more systemic, like where they know that there's a, they like kids aren't stupid. They know there is a massive cultural dif uh, 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 deficit between them and the people that have them all day long, have them for hours. They're not dumb. They know who loves them and who doesn't and who hates them. They're over-policed, over-managed, um, hyper, hyper uh, disciplined and, all kinds of ways. What, what do you think, Sharif, we do in schools to make it so that they can be like vulnerability is not punished and so that they can be their true selves? And and uh, even if their peers don't allow them to be it sometimes, what can we do as people who are interested in schools and schooling and teachers and education? Yeah, I mean, I think a big thing about it is is the practice to be vulnerable, right? Like if you've constantly, you know, even unconsciously built these barriers, built these walls, you saw people modeling that as well. Um, then what does it mean to actually practice? You know, it may be uncomfortable. 
you know, and so like in a school setting where so many students feel like it's not just their peers, right? It's like adults too, that they feel like they have to protect their emotions from, you know, just mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. you know, be more stoic and not let that teacher know or that principal know that they got to me, right? Like and hide that deep within. And that's what gets practiced over and over and over again, right? And so I think, you know, the one that when we talk about like that safe space, you know, many people think like, yeah, you know, the physical safety of a child, you know, they're literally thinking, besides the states that beat kids, you know, they're literally thinking about peer to peer safety, you know. Um, we'll but, about that enough. Yeah, but we actually have got to think about the intellectual, cultural, mm-hmm. emotional safety of children, you know, the in like, what does it mean to be intellectually safe in my learning environment? What does it mean to be culturally, emotionally safe in my learning environment? And every, every dagger isn't directly, but it is direct, right? When it's indirectly say, yeah, your people have not contributed anything to society. What does that do to the psyche? Um, and so for mm-hmm. me, like education, a big part of that is a positive racial identity of a child so that they can be whole, so that they can feel fulfill what their vision of themselves is. And, you know, that, it always comes back to that Kujichakalia principle, right? That self-determination, a child raising a child to be able to speak for themselves, think for themselves, define themselves, name themselves instead of being spoken for, defined and named by others. Um, and I, look, I don't know what percentage of black men even author books. You know, um, you know, probably less than 10 percent are black folks authoring. If we if I just take a snapshot memory of what children book authors are, then when I think about like adult uh, uh, facing books, um, that can be like absolutely, you know, one, I'm I'm grateful. You know, we got three authors on here and also would, uh, you know, appreciate you all, you know, even adding during the course of this conversation this evening, unencourage more black men. You know, we're still waiting for, uh, you know, Citizen Stewart's book to come out. So anything <laughs> you can do to sprinkle, you know, those, uh, you know, those words in there, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be dope. And, and just Ray said he is in the comments, people. He is okay. Uh, and is he, he trolling or is he, he has found time to like troll Sharif? <laughs> Nobody was calling for him. <laughs> he, he did. They were, in the comments people were concerned they said where's Raymond and then Ray hopped in the comments so he just okay, wanted to know he's here okay Otis ain't no <laughs> one, one of the things I wanted to kind of piggyback from what Sharif was talking about I mean one of the things that um, struck me when um, I spent time with these these two young men was how we have created such a narrow path for our young men to walk to reach what we consider kind of adult success and so that's you know school high school you know go to college get a degree and this is what they're facing as they they're leaving this institution that has shown them nothing but hate and Mm -hmm. has 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 created an environment where they despise walking into this building every day and yet you are going to tell them like the only way for you to succeed is to kind of to endure, to su- subject yourself to more of that same kind of abuse that you've been feeling for the last 12 years. And, you know, that's the only way you can make it. And I think that a lot of them are these step out. They, they finally get that high school diploma and, and, you know, they're thinking, OK, well, what next? And you're telling them, no, you got to go back into these these white institutions that disrespect you and that don't seem to have any regard for who you are. And that's the only way that that you're going to make it. And, and they're looking at others who have 
done the same thing. And then, you know, going into workplaces where they also feel the same disregard and disrespect and abuse. And like, you know, I see it on their faces like that. That's it. That's that's all y'all got for me. That's what what I've been doing over the I've been subjecting myself to this pain over more than a decade. And y'all y'all are telling me here that, you know, that the, the, the future holds much of the same. And, you know, I think that that is a really painful lesson. And we need to open this up and to start allowing for for their creativity, for their creative juices to 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 build spaces for them, to build careers for them. I mean, Romero, who's in Oakland, is a, a gifted, gifted pastor. You know, he's a leader of, of men and women, and he's starting to use that um, to carve out a future for himself, you know, mm-hmm. to use his pastoral gifts. And so he's, he's found a way to kind of get around the end run around, um, the, that traditional path. And I, I saw somebody put HBCU in the, in the comments, and, you know, that is definitely a, a, a huge step forward that more, more and more of us, I think in, in different communities and in different, um, income stratas are, are looking at HBCUs as, you know, the solution for a lot of what our children are, are have been dealing with, you know, in these per- predominantly white institutions, a counterbalance. Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, you'll find in the book, particularly Romero and Jamari's story is just, you know, the power of relationship. Uh, you know, over my career, uh, I've had an opportunity to run Beacon Schools, which are school-based community centers that uh, brought in, you know, community leaders all day during the school building, allowed educators to be educators, but built relationships. And when we look at, say, Jamari in Detroit, uh, his relationship with an educator, Quan Nellum, in uh, Frederick Douglass Academy, uh, Quan created a uh, an initiative called the Lyricist Society, right, and used hip hop as a tool for teaching and history. And Jamari was a, a rapper and a poet, and they made that connection and they formed that bond. And while there were challenges in his home life and his community, uh, that sense of love, safety, and belonging in that relationship uh, was really powerful for him. And the same thing for Romero uh, with Chris. And it wasn't just Chris, it wasn't just Quan, it was a community of, uh, of leaders. And so uh, we cannot wait for uh, large-scale changes in our uh, school system. Uh, We have to create strategies of uh, infiltration, right, and partnerships with community-based organizations, after-school, family uh, support to uh, provide that uh, covering uh, and that that sense of uh, of purpose and focus that our, you know, we needed as adults. And the other thing I just want to... share that the book really also talks about trauma. You know, I I write about, uh, you know, my Harlem resiliency story. I tell a heroin story of traveling a train for the first time by myself as a nine-year-old because I wanted to prove it and uh, uh, went from the Bronx to Harlem, uh, my mother's house to my godmother's house, got on the wrong train coming back. Uh, Instead of going uptown, I went downtown. 
wound up getting abducted, right? Uh, I was nine years old, had a fur coat on. Uh, my godmother ran numbers with Nikki Barnes' dad, uh, uh, Roy Barnes, and one of the hustlers saw fit that Sean, little curly-haired, dimpled Sean, should have a fur coat. And for so many years, I told that story as I survived it, right? Uh, Could have got killed. Uh, Could have been that uh, uh, that face on the milk carton. But uh, I told that story as my uh, Harlem resiliency story. And I told that story for almost 50 uh, uh, years until I was in therapy. I was uh, also on a retreat in a small trusted circle and I was telling a crucible story and broke down and cried more at 57 than I did at nine and realized that two things can be true. Yes, that was my uh, Harlem resiliency story, but it was also trauma. And we too often normalize trauma in the black community, that this is a part of the black experience, right? And that's a lie. And so the book elevates how we can be catalysts our own healing, uh, that therapy is okay, uh, and shifting the narratives of uh, um, that, you know, I'm okay, right? Uh, We go through some stuff, but we're not okay. And so telling that story, uh, I tell the story of, um, you know, my addiction and coming towards the end of my uh, addiction and wanting to jump on the tracks, right? Had it all planned out on 34th Street and Penn Station, and grabbing the third rail. And God, that was his divine intervention. Mm. Instead of jumping on the tracks, I got on a train and I went into a, a, a rehab, right? And some folks look at Sean Dove, uh, this national leader, and don't know, wow, that's part of your story, right? And that we uh, are not defined by our worst mistakes, right? And how do we share that? Through our stories. And last thing I will pass it to Nick about the vulnerability. Uh, this is really, was powerful for me. Uh, I write about in my youth how I was a bedwetter. Uh, and my godmother uh, thought that it was a good idea that, you know, this strategy to break me out of uh, bedwetting was to put my pea stain sheets on the fire escape uh, facing Lenox Avenue. We're outside playing hot peas and butter, right? I don't know what hot peas and butter is. We'll do a seminar what that game is uh, all about. And they stopped and they looked up, they pointed at the fire escape and they were laughing at me and I had shared that shame that I felt. And I had a brother my age who read the book and said to me, that was my story too. And in this conversation, just this almost feeling and seeing ease come in and shame drop. And, you know, as Sharif said, modeling that uh, vulnerability. And that was a powerful thing when he uh, shared that uh, uh, with me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've I've spent. the last like almost 15 years writing memoirs with people. I mean, I guess most of them um, get book deals because they're famous celebrity memoirs. This, this book with Sean is my 20th book. And, you know, I've written with Al Sharpton and Kirk Franklin. The last book I had out a few months ago, Jamie Foxx, 
um, Deval Patrick, Eton Thomas, um, a, a long list. And, you know, there's so many similarities that hmm. I just can't help but but to to go back to, to what Sean is talking about with the trauma, you know, that that underlies so many, so many of the stories of even those of us considered the most successful. And so when, you know, you see these talented men and you think that surely their path, you know, was different than ours. And often it was not, you know, there was, there was a great deal of trauma that they overcame. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of them would, would, would say that there was a lot of luck involved that they could have been in the same positions that so many of our men are who, who are as talented as some of those people who become household names. And, you know, I, so I kind of think that's part of my mission is to, to, to shed a light on our stories and go past, like, you know, somebody who has become famous for singing a song or bouncing a ball. Um, you know, when, the more that, that you see our full humanity, that opens it up for, for all of us, those who, who aren't quite so famous, any of us to, to be able to, to share our vulnerabilities and to know that, you know, that there's another side that, that perhaps we, when we make it through these dark moments, um, and we lean on each other, you know, that, that it's going to be okay, you know, because some of our favorite people had, were in some of the same places, you know, and they saw those dark moments as well. So for the people that's reading, I, I just had a quick question. Wait, Chris. Yeah. Um, cause just listening or whatnot, and there's definitely some similar beasts that we got and there's some, some different beasts that we have, but, uh, for the folks that's reading this, right? Like I got a lot of, there was a lot of black moms that read mine and we laid out the navigation of these other young folks because there just aren't a lot of navigation stories around started here, ended up here. Here's what happened in the middle that got us to that point. Are there any like, uh, and you don't have to give them away because we want people to write to, to, to go and buy the book, but does the book lay out like, you know, clear things that that mom can do or that father can do or that community leader can actually do or building the agency of the young black man that might pick up that book and read it on his own? I'm just from a practical standpoint, I'm just curious. Well, I mean, I think mentorship was one of the the, the huge lessons that that come comes out of this because it played such a big role in the lives of those two young men and Sean's life in my own life, um, you know, we, we need to, to surround our young men with, with love as kind of armor, like a shield. And one of the huge ways of doing that, especially with boys is to bring some other men into their lives, men that they can respect, that they can, can lean on, that can, they can be vulnerable with. So if, if the father happens to not be around, you know, it's it's not a lost cause, not at all that, you know, you you still have access to a lot of power out there, you know, a lot of loving power that that can help make this path for your, your boy make a little bit more sense. Yeah. And I, and I think that um, one of the navigation points, and particularly I grew up uh, a single mom and uh my mother uh, leveraged social capital before that was even uh, a term. And uh, we lived in the Bronx and she had no child care. And she found uh, in Harlem um, a woman that took care of other children, right? Um, was uh, uh, off the books daycare uh, center. So leveraging uh, community um, 
community capital, right? And I also think that um, community-based organizations, uh, the path is uh, not just, you know, school is important, uh, but what's happening outside of, of school, uh, my relationships with coaches, uh, my relationships uh, with uh, my basketball team and sitting around before we got on the basketball court, uh, reading books like um, Man, Child in the Promised Land and having those uh, common uh, experiences and just, you know, really utilizing the assets in the community uh, around you. And I think for my mother, uh, she took risks, right? She took risks and, uh, she trusted me and, um, you know, I had stumbled, uh, on many occasions, uh, but there was just that unconditional, uh, unconditional love, uh, that she uh, demonstrated uh, for me. Mm. And, and, you know, this idea of love, it can be a very challenging when we when we're looking at you know some of these knuckleheads that we have in our in our home in our homes, you know who many times you know their behavior um, elicits our responses in us that you know are about as far from love as you can get. At least that's what it looks like in their eyes. And I think that you know we we need to kind of push through a lot of that. You know that. that you know, responding to them in anger, you know, with with retribution, with punishment, um, you know, kind of trying to understand them, understand some of the things that they do. Yes. You know, they're, we all were knuckleheads at one point and did a lot of dumb stuff. But, you know, often there were there was reasoning, you know, you could kind of very easily trace to connect the dots. You know, this behavior that he is is exhibiting to me is because of something that might have happened a few months ago. And, and you know, mom, dad, we need to, to be thinking a little bit more deeply about, you know, what it is that our young men are going through. And, you know, I think that um, the, 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 the idea of, of kind of sheltering them and or not sheltering, but but arming them with love is one of the, the, the major things that is going to allow them to fight off a lot of the the seductions that they might find on the streets, you know, gangs. I mean, that's what gang membership is all about. It's it's about love. And, you know, if, it, if they're able to access that in other places, you know, in their homes and in, in their families, the people around them, you know, I think that that makes them a little bit more invulnerable to, to some of the things that, you know, our young men fall into on the street. Chris, I didn't mean I mean, to cut you off earlier, brother. Go ahead. No, no, I like you. You know, I thought your question was uh, was the right one. So this is what uh, strikes me as uh, complicating to this entire story. I think there is much more stock in talking about broken men than there are talking about the systems that create broken men. I think that there is much more stock in demonizing and being recriminating and being harsh because there is a stereotype that even our own people themselves are walking or walking around with about black males in general. And if they show this type of anger, or if they show this type of behavior, or if they show this type of whatever, you got to smack that down really hard and quick and fast and whatnot, because it's somehow more threatening when they do it than when a Mexican does it or a white kid does it or a European kid or a Finnish kid or whatnot. Finnish children aren't walking around with the saddle of hundreds of years of negative marketing about their animal based instincts, 
right? So when they do, as you call it, knucklehead stuff, it's called young stuff. It's called young people. It's called children. It's called childish stuff. It's called being childish, being immature or whatnot. When a Finnish kid does it, when a Dutch kid does it, when a German kid does it, when a white American kid does it, when kids in Beverly Hills do it, right? It's a, it's a different thing. But every piece of science tells you that from kindergarten and even before kindergarten on that young black male children are receiving a message of quick uh, rebuttal, like anything you do. Don't touch this. Don't do that. Don't ask for nothing. Don't get this. Don't do this. Don't move left. Don't move right. Don't don't raise your voice. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't be mad. Don't have a normal, valid response to a circumstance. Right. Just comply. Don't resist. Uh, uh, you should, shouldn't, shouldn't resist it. Right. Uh, man, listen, we got kids in America that have affluenza who are killing people with DWIs and, and, and getting no jail time. Just yeah. a white kid recently who raped, uh, four underage girls and got zero jail time because the judge said he prayed the night before and didn't think that jail was right for him. Right. We live in a country where, uh, where you can have a million more on March where white men take over the Capitol and crap in the, the, the offices of congressmen and smoke weed in the halls of Congress and actually steal laptops and try and sell them to foreign countries. And you have an entire network that's devoted to saying, you know, that wasn't really that bad. That's just patriots. But you have people who start marching because they've been wrongfully killed and are laying dead in the streets because of police officers and they have a valid claim to protest. And we throw the book at them. We just throw the book at them for for uh, for looking at justice, for trying to achieve justice. So the complicating factor, I guess, me saying all that is I wonder if the stereotype runs so deep that. that we are no, we're not a country for black males or for black people who can't expect to be one. Even some of our own people, some of our own other non-black males in our community love to talk about how trash we are uh, in so many ways, right? They take to social media and, and even further damage us without asking the question, tell me the point of origin from where those people came from. Where did those black males come from? Because they didn't just wake up, you know, I'm sure at one point in their life, they had to have been a baby, right? At one point in their life, they were a fresh, brand new baby out of the womb. And between then and age 18 or 20 or 21, when they are in the spotlight, a negative spotlight somewhere, something happened. And there were a lot of people involved in that something that happened in that time. Uh, But the people who are involved in that process, who are closest to them, I don't think we're ready to have an honest conversation about what's being done to create the, when Ice Cube said, I'm the hate that, that hate made, Uh right. I'm the hate that hate made. That's exactly, we have a lot of uh, unfinished stories out there. We have a lot of unresolved educational trauma walking around out there. We have a lot of angry people with righteous anger. Uh, and what, what's the cliche? Uh, hurt people, hurt people, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know we spend too much time and focus as a society uh, asking uh, black men and boys what's wrong with you, uh, instead of asking the more pertinent question of like what happened to you, right? Um, and not just what happened to you in your lifetime, but what happened to you uh, generationally. And America, 
Uh, I agree. It is 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 sick. Imagine, uh, you know, this whole notion of in the poem Langston Hill saying that you are uh, you'll be ashamed. Uh, the type of personality that cannot be ashamed or does not feel shame uh, is a narcissistic, sociopathic uh, 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 personality. And if you have a, a country whose birth certificate uh, has one identity, its declaration mm. of independence, uh, values of equality and opportunity, but every day uh, acts against that. Uh, the nature of this country is diseased. And not only are Black people being demonized, demonized, the country is imploding uh, on itself, right? And, you know, we have insurrectionists who think that they have a different brand of uh, patriotism uh, than black folks, right? And uh, black men are more patriotic, uh, serving and volunteering uh, for their country than anyone uh, anyone else. The story of black men as uh, uh, absentee fathers, uh, research has documented that we are more engaged in our children's lives, uh, whether in the homes or as custodial parents, uh, than any other uh, race of men. And I think it's just so important that we like reclaim that narrative and tell that story uh, in the midst of uh, America that doesn't um, doesn't love us. And I'm glad, Chris, that you talked about the systems because when we launched the campaign for black male achievement, um, you know, our premise was one, there's nothing wrong with black men and boys in the United States. It is the systems and the structures in which they have uh, uh, come up uh, in and are uh, in, right? The sea is sick, right? So don't blame the fish, right? The sea is polluted. Um, and the other I think is really important is just this asset-based uh, of framing and how we look at and talk about and see uh, not the deficits, uh, but the aspirations of, uh, of black men and boys. And uh, right now, when you look at philanthropy and you look at uh, hmm. the uh, public discourse, uh, it's no longer a sexy uh, conversation anymore. We've past uh, it being a philanthropic uh, a point to focus on. Uh, but that is not the case when we got brothers like ourselves uh, that are raising the flag and, uh, you know, taking a stand for uh, uh, black men and boys. Um, you know, it is still uh, a critical, uh, necessary uh, issue if this nation is going to uh, realize it's democratic ideal. You know what though, you, you y'all making me want to go over now though because I think like I mean cuz there's there's a lot to, kinda, no, there's a lot to unpack there and I and I agree with it, right? And I but and I think that and I and I know Chris Chris is amazing. Uh I I I know AAMA. I worked in a district with 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 Chris. He's an amazing cat. That's an amazing program. And y'all book, I mean it's it's some amazing stuff happening. I think what's hard for me as one of those 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 black men that fall into those categories is when we start talking about the system, right? So it's like, okay, well, we just got to fix the system. We just got to fix the system, but the system ain't gonna ever be fixed. It's just it's just not right. It's just 
not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime. You know what I'm saying? And and it's not that my work does not have targets, uh, policy goals, right? That try to fix the system. But that's why I made my work so much around agency. People care about your story when you a 10 year old black boy. They don't give a fuck about it when you a 40 year old black man. Like trauma doesn't go away. It goes dormant and it re and it, and it re embraces and re and reemerges as Sean was talking about, right? You talked about this awakening you had, what'd you say in your fifties? Like, you know what I mean? Like these moments that you had. So we talking about a system, you know, and Tupac talks about, you know, the rose that grew from concrete, right? Where it's like, yo, like if you pick up that rose and you look at it and be like, well, damn, look at these old messed up petals. It's like, Negro, I came up out of concrete. Can't Like this is not a place. So when you talk, so when I'm listening and I'm talking as, Man, I lived in four shelters or my, my parents was dope fiends and it was in and out of jail and 11 schools. And like I did this with a scholar that showed me uh, statistically what my chances of going to college were. It was less than zero point. It was zero point zero 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 five or something like that. Right. And then it's like what. But he didn't say the right thing in that. Oh, he didn't use the right language on Twitter. Oh, this person feel, is, is aggressive. And now, as Chris named, if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it. The campaign has moved from being led by white people that they are now using black people, our own people, to be like, you are the problem. You are the toxicity. It is on you. And I think somebody even said it here. They said, uh, well, you know, that toxicity, these black boys spread this toxicity to everybody. Right. And it's just like, well, damn. So then we are mad at these black boys or black males that then remove themselves from that society or don't want to be around other people and make their own spaces. So how do we reconcile Sean and Nick and Chris and Sharif? How do we reconcile from talking about a system that ain't never going to change or it ain't changed in the last 300 years to actually building stronger black boys that turn to black men and helping fix our black men that have been broken uh, no. in ways that we can take the, str- the, the saddle on our own and do that for ourselves. I just want to add a point is that when I talk about, I, I talk about systems, right. not a system. Right. So I don't think that black boys are coming through a system. I think they're coming through multiple systems and Absolutely. They're being failed in many of them. A family is a system. A neighborhood is a system. A church is a system. We have uh, uh, um, help systems in the form of social services. And we have an entire sector of people who earn their keep and are devoted to working in some of the most impoverished zip codes in America. And you mm-hmm. have to ask questions about how much of that help is actually uh, reaching the people. So there isn't a system, or maybe you can say, if you did say that there is a system, it's a conglomerate of many other systems that are going on. But I don't think anybody has, I don't think that there's many people in the United States who can stand with a lot of like self-appreciation in the fact that they're doing all they can for black boys, period. I don't care who you are listening to this and watching this right now. Our black boys are some of the most unguarded young children. If I started just rattling off certain statistics about hidden traumas that are being uh, visited upon mm-hmm. them, things we don't like to talk about. Uh, there are certain abuse, types of abuse women would like to talk about. You, you will come to believe that this is one of the most unguarded populations uh, in the United States. And that ain't just because of the system. Like we all have to put our, make ourselves somewhat complicit. And, 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 and I'll, draw, I'll open this up to the fellas to kind of respond uh, uh, to, this, to this point that you're putting on the table, because I think it's an important one. But this is what I will say. 
we have to start reclaiming space for ourselves to do what these two brothers said to us earlier is to allow uh, our young black males to feel vulnerable and to be able to uh, express a range of their humanity, a range of their emotions, a range of their abilities in a, a place that is made safe by them, made safe for them because it's being led and built by people who are like them and understand them and have the same thing going on. So black men have to start recovering space. You are right, Charles, in that there was a national movement that started with Mike Brown or started with Trayvon Martin or started with black male bodies laying dead in the street in places like Ferguson and elsewhere. And there was hundreds of millions of dollars that was raised on behalf of we gotta do something for the Mike Browns of the world, the, the Tamara Rice's of the world, and the Trayvon Martins of the world. This could lead to a different show, but that, that movement ended up somewhere else because hundreds of millions of dollars came through the door and it wasn't put in the hands of black males to save black males. It was put in the hands to, I'm not gonna deride anybody, but I'm just going to say that sometimes uh, kinfolk aren't skinfolk. And oftentimes people who join white progressives in movements that are meant to save us start dancing to the wrong drummers and they start dancing to the wrong tunes and they forget their own origin stories. So it is possible for you now to go to a website of a movement that started because of Mike Brown being dead. Don't say nothing about black boys. And it has erased, it has erased, uh, it has been gender cleansed of being about Trayvon or Mike Brown, because as brother Sean says, not just is it not sexy anymore, um, it actually is more popular to talk, to, to re-kill those dead brothers in the street by talking about how toxic uh, uh, the black male is. I don't know if, if that's making too, too crazy of a point, but I'm gonna open it up to you brothers. But, you know, to quickly respond to Charles as well, uh, you know, my leadership mantra is, you know, there's no cavalry coming to save the day. Uh, Ain't nobody coming, B. You know, we're the iconic leaders we've been waiting for, right? Curators of the change we're seeking uh, to see. And I look at uh, Brother Sharif and what he has built. He is building an institution, uh, a school and not only that, a pipeline for training and uh, 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 connecting black male teachers to come teach our children, right? And to teach our, uh, not just boys, but our black children. And I think that is the, uh, 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 the strategy because philanthropy is not going to save the day. There's a longstanding adage that, you know, philanthropy is not going to fund the uh, uh, a revolution, uh, but you also got to have an inside-outside game, right? Uh, you have got to be on the corner and in City Hall, right? Some consciousness uh, in City Hall, um, the boardroom and the block. And in my time in philanthropy, um, being able to uh, direct millions of dollars to Black-led organizations that are doing some serious work was... Uh, I think a critical lever for me being within philanthropy. Not everyone that's black that gets into philanthropy does that, but there are a lot of folks that are in philanthropy. But the thing about it is that we, when we're talking about resources, 
we are often like just throwing uh, coins <laughs> uh, and shooting BBs at an aircraft carrier where there are billions of dollars that are not being directed to building an institution, uh, sustaining organizations, giving unrestricted uh, uh, grants. And we got to start looking at entrepreneurship, uh, social enterprise, and not relying on uh, solely philanthropic dollars. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you talked about this pea shooter because um, I think that's a unfortunate strategy um, that so many of us, you know, have experienced and implemented, you know, in, in different ways. And I, I just really believe that, you know, organized systems are what can combat systems. Yes, you can have that, you know, one-off individual, but you know, it's really the systems and the institutions that's going to fight the battles at the institutional level. Um, and I think too often it's uh, individuals trying to fight institutions, and that's not. That's not a sustainable way to go about it. A person can lead, inspire, support, connect, but it really has to be, uh, you know, these institutions. I, I think, um, you know, the whole idea and it's, you know, we're talking a lot of things. And I think that's where the the, pol- the political uh, aspect and the organizing comes in, too. Right. You know, when Malcolm talked about that political maturity that black people need to have, um, I don't think we're there yet. You know, I don't think we're even close to being politically mature um, and using that as a as a lever to, again, build support institutions to to do some of these, uh, you know, massive battles, sustained battles uh, that just you know have to happen. Um, and you both mentioned it in the book and several times this evening, just this idea of like giving the space to these young black men. Um you know, for them to process, because I think a lot of times it, and Sean, I think every, you know, everybody can probably talk about, you know, uh, I don't have a story nowhere close to the, uh, you know, being uh, abducted or anything like that. But I just think about all the things that that, you know, may have led to my rage as a teenager, but I didn't. I didn't have any process for it. I found, I found a release through football, found, found a release through fighting, you know, but it was, it was a while before it was actually able to process like, okay, wait a minute, how did this, you know, um, this rage occur? And then if you take that rage on one side that youth may be experiencing and then throw away the mentality and the, uh, the default of throw them away, you know, even from, you know, within our own communities, like, oh, throw them away, throw them away. Kids hearing that over and over and over again, you know, and, and um, Chris mentioned this earlier, you know, for black kids to, to recognize and experience their teachers uh, racial bias as early as three years old, you know, so it's not even like, oh, Mike Brown at, at 18, it's a three year old, you know, um, even then not looked at as a baby and a human being and deserving of, of love and, and all of this, you know, it's, uh, there's so many other things that are just constantly gnawing away, um, you know, at their, you know, at their lives, really at their lives, you know? Um, so like, it's, it's just so much work to do, but I appreciate the, you know, um, not only this conversation, but the book and looking forward to, you know, to, to reading it. Yeah, we're going to do more with it. So this is what I'm going to say, because we are coming up on time and we are doing that thing that we are famous and known for, which is going into a second show. (laughs) Um, So what I'm going to say we should do is we should do our round of final thoughts. Um, We'll start with the eight black hands and then uh, allow our our guest uh, kind of a last word. And then um, and then I will have an announcement at the end about the book. 
at the end here. So, uh, Charles, when we start with you, then we'll go to Sharif. We'll let our guests do final thoughts and then uh, we'll round out. Uh, yeah, man. One, I just want to thank you, brothers, for being here. And I look forward to getting the book and reading the book and uh, and the, the other festivities around it. Um, I think this is an interesting conversation. And I feel like, you know, I'm glad we got to start it. And I do feel like there is another half of this. Right. And I one that I would call the uncensored, unedited, not nice, like real half. And I think that, uh, you know, it's um. It's, a, it's always a tough topic, man, because I'm one of those people that, you know, when, when, when I was approached by certain groups or whatever the case is, and if all you got from me is to say, you know, hey, well, we got to, it's these systems, man, or it's this or it's that, like, like, I probably wouldn't have joined it. But if it was showing me, like these brothers said around how to be an entrepreneur, how to get it, how to like take care of my family, like the things that I was, that were germane to my, to, to my upbringing and what it meant to be a man. And now we redefining everything in that, in that moment. Like that's a lot for people to kind of devour. That's a lot for people to digest. And, you know, if I don't trust you, I'm not about to be vulnerable with, with, with nobody. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially from the places where a lot of us in this conversation come from, um, you know, that can get you hurt. That can get you really, really messed up in certain places in the streets. You know what I'm saying? And like, there has to be some type of value for these folks that were raised in the wilderness, but are now roaming boardrooms and like having to reconcile those things. Like that should be its own series uh, because similar in my book and maybe Chris, maybe Sean, and Nick have dealt with this too. I know this is the final thoughts, but this concept that I want people to just kind of struggle with, I am somebody that came up in a whole lot of other stuff. If I could take the spoils from here, if I could take my salary from here, but go straight back to the hood, I wouldn't deal with most of these people in most of these systems. You know what I mean? Because I feel like at least there were rules in the wilderness. At least there was rules in those ghettos, right? Like of how you operated. I think now we in a space where yo, man, it's open season on these black folks and and lets you say something and you about to be the problem again and again and again and always. So uh, not the not the not the brightest of final thoughts, but that's where I'm at in the moment. So uh, I'm really happy I got to meet you, brothers. Same here, Charles. Yeah, I, you know, I'm again, I'm grateful to, uh, you know, to, to meet you, Nick, and see you again, Sean. You know, this is, is dope. Looking forward to, uh, you know, just uh, reconnecting and everything. I, You know, I'm where I am right now is, uh, you know, just uh, deeper in gratitude. You know, I am I'm so, so grateful um, that just had the blessing to have so many um, just amazing black men. Um, in my experience, um, having been mentored, um, raised, supported, taught uh, by so many black men. Um, my favorite teacher of all time was Baba Changa, you know, black man um, that was a, you know, until he passed, he was not only my, you know, a teacher, but a lifelong, you know, mentor and inspiration. You know, my father, my stepfather, uncles, cousins, you name it. Um, I'm, I'm just really, really grateful. And I think if, uh, if anything, uh, can kind of share a pass forward or, you know, uh, emulate any aspect of the impact that they had on me. If I can, you know, uh, do that for any, um, other young black man, I would consider that, you know, um, you know, just an amazing, amazing, uh, opportunity and blessing in itself. Um, you know, and be one of the uh, best things under the sun, um, as far as I'm concerned. So again, appreciate y'all. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you. Bro. 
I'll go next so that my colleague will have the last word. Um, I just want us to, to all embrace the idea that our, our young boys, our young girls, our, 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 our families need joy in their lives. Um, I think that, you know, that's one thing that is, I think is often missing from our homes. So if we could all endeavor to put a smile on that little boy's face in your household at least once a day and to have that be kind of like your, your daily goal, you know, that's on your schedule and continue that. It might be, it's easy when he's six and seven and eight, but you know, as he starts moving into the the early teens and the middle of his teen years can try to continue that. And I think that that changes the whole environment in which he he's raised and he starts seeing the value and joy, the value in, in, and smiling just because we're dealing with all of these traumas and all of these issues. When we leave the house, we still deserve to have joy. And I think that we can start at a very early age, bringing that to our young people. And I think it'll go really far. Mm. Thanks for that, Nick. Um, I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier. Uh, There's no Calvary coming to save the day in black communities, Mm. right? Uh, We are the iconic leaders that we've been waiting for, the curators of the change that we're seeking to see. And inherent of uh, being curators of the change we're seeking to see is the notion that we have everything that we need. And Chris and I were having this conversation the other day of how challenging it is for uh, black folks uh, to get into formation, right? Because uh, the disunity is a strategy and how can we get in formation, understand our strengths and create this flywheel of a change, you know, tomorrow's MLK day. And uh, in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? He talks about how it's going to take a minority of uh, committed uh, believers, right? And I'm just grateful to be part of uh, that minority of true believers. Um, and uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, we need to bring back, whatever happened to Black Solidarity Day, right? Uh, growing up, it was Black Solidarity. I, I haven't heard much about that. Uh, we got to just build some solidarity in our uh, uh, community. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you brothers for coming on tonight. I actually believe that this is what I needed this week because my algorithm was jacked up and I just needed some people to say you are not crazy. We are. uh, The narrative is wrong. The narrative is broken about us. And sadly, some of us are participating in that broken narrative. So if you want to do something revolutionary tomorrow for MLK Day, call every black male that you know. Uh, (laughs) That's what you can do revolutionary tomorrow and say, I am sick and tired of the narrative about you. I'm sick of watching you be a good dad. I'm sick of watching you work jobs. You don't you don't want to work so that you can feed kids and feed your family. I'm sick of you don't going above and beyond on the things that you do. And I'm sick of the narrative about you criminalizing you, criminalizing you for the crimes that were done against you, right? That's what you could do tomorrow if you want to be revolutionary. And everybody who gets that call as a black male, the revolutionary thing you can do is to call everybody else who's not a black male and, and give them the same speech back. Create the space for the joy. Create the space for the love. Uh, Smile at babies because they are looking at ugly faces go by them in a shreddy (laughs) stream all day long. And if you are the one that smiles, breaks out uh, of that pattern, 
you are going you is going to have an impact that's lasting so do it here's the thing i i always say the revolution it's was, send mine via text message i don't want all them damn phone calls text my phone let me change what i was saying before don't call everybody call charles twice right just because he because he needs it i will but, block um, you this is why this is one of these are one of my this is one of my favorite couplet of folks to come on because I always say that the revolution will be literate, right? And uh, I I literally believe I literally believe that the word is the power and the word will set us free, right? Especially the truthful word will set us free. So when you have two people like this, first of all, Nick, congratulations, brother, on uh, all the books that you have. Uh, you have all the words that you have put into the world to make the world a better place, including this book that we have been discussing tonight, I Too Am American. Uh, and don't let me mess up the subtitle on loving and leading black men and boys, because uh, I don't want Sean to come after me. But um, this is what I believe in. I believe you support black books and you support black letters when it comes along. So we don't just come on to talk about this. So people in the in the comments, listening and watching, please buy the book tonight, right? Go to um, dovesores.com, which is uh, Sean's website, especially if you want a signed copy, go to his, get the book from, from him. We're going to be uh, doing a book, a book club on this book. I put it out on Twitter and on uh, Instagram uh, a week or so ago. And uh, it was just because I, before the book came out, I bought several copies. I think I bought five copies saying, I'm going to get me five people who want to read this book together. We're going to have a communal learning opportunity uh, around this because I think it's important and it touches my heart. And for the last year, I've been saying I'm sick of being invisible. I'm sick of black men who are doing uh, what they need to do in a world being invisible and the narrative being wrong. So put my money where my mouth is. If you're listening and you are watching this right now, um, I will. I have five copies. I will buy another uh, 20 copies uh, for people that want to join the book club. The book club is going to start uh, a week from this coming Thursday. So it's the next Thursday after that. Uh, we will do chapter by chapter, uh, week by week. And if you want to join us, we already have a good number of people that responded. Um, uh, but I don't care how big it gets because we need a communal learning opportunity. I see somebody in the comments saying, is this for men only? No, I think we need to build community. We need to build intergenerational, interracial, uh, intergender uh, a community around the idea of restoring the humanity of the black male and to changing the narrative so that our black boys become black men uh, who are well adjusted and can lead in the world that God would have them lead in. Um, so no, it is open to uh, anybody, this offer that I'm making right now, and I did talk to Sean about this to okay it with him before. It's open to anybody. Again, let me put the book up. If you want to get your own copy, get a copy. If you want to get a copy for a young person in your life, get a copy. Go to dovesores.com. Uh, Sean will sign them if you want them signed. Uh, and, you know, listen, y'all know how to get me. I'm on Twitter at Citizen Stewart. Shoot me a message. I will get you a, co uh, a copy and I will get you into the book club. And uh, Sean is joining us. I really would love it if Nick would join us, too, because uh, uh, I have such respect for letters and the people who who give us the letters that we need in this world. Uh, um, so, brothers, there it is. That's my, my that's what I'm doing uh, for MLK Day this year. Thank you, Thank you brother. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been wonderful. Appreciate y'all. What's up, man? All right. Uh, looking forward to uh, coming back, you know. Uh, oh, absolutely. Anytime. Don't come back here no more. I'm hoping this is not one of those occasions where uh, you're saying don't come back. 
and I can come back. To Nick come back. <laughs> come back. back. Most stuff. Most stuff. Yes. All good. Well, y'all have an amazing week. We'll see y'all next time. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Eight Black Hands One. Thank you for listening. <laughs>